So when you start an adventure, it doesn't matter if it's a date or a meeting or a startup, you don't really know what the thing is. And because of that, it's very hard to estimate the probability that this will be really something. Luck is about trying lots of things and cutting out the things that don't work out early. Our ability to predict what projects would work and not work is not very high. And if we stick only to the things that are sure things, we're giving up some of the long tail of success. You plant lots of seeds, and if something works, you keep on investing in it, and something not, you cut it off. And if you take that approach, you basically get to generate your luck. This is Love Your Work. On this show, we help you make it as a creative. I'm David Cadavy. If you want to join us here on Love Your Work every Thursday, please hit subscribe on your podcast app and sign up for the Love Mondays newsletter. I've studied history's greatest creatives and each Monday I share with you the very best lessons I've learned. It's a two minute a week commitment and it is free. Sign up at cadavy.net slash Mondays. Dan Ariely has more opportunities than he knows what to do with. As a James B. Duke professor of psychology and behavioral economics at Duke University and author of New York Times bestselling books such as Predictably Irrational, he has lots of demands on his time. Dan has to say no to a lot of opportunities that don't have a clear payoff, but surprisingly, he also has to say no to a lot of opportunities that do have a clear payoff. That is because, as Dan tells us in this conversation, he gambles with his time. What does that mean? He intentionally does some small amount of things that don't have a clear payoff. In order to have the space and time for those gambles, he needs to say no to some sure bets. In this episode, we'll learn more about how Dan gambles with his time. We're also going to learn how did gambling with his time lead Dan to publish his exciting new graphic novel, Amazing Decisions, the illustrated guide to improving business deals and family meals. Also, the creative process for Dan's new graphic novel is a big departure from that of his research papers and books. How did he navigate the uncertainty when collaborating with an artist? With everything Dan knows about human behavior, how does he design his habits, rituals, and routines to optimize creative output and spark motivation? This isn't the typical conversation with the living legend of behavioral science, Dan Ariely. If you want to know more about his groundbreaking work on irrationality, I suggest that you check out our first conversation on episode 51. A quick note here, Dan and I talk about Timeful a number of times throughout this conversation. So in case you're not familiar with that, Timeful was a productivity app that Dan and I collaborated on. I was the design advisor there. It later sold to Google and some of the timeful features are integrated into Google Calendar. Thank you so much to our new Patreon supporters, Mary Lou Parsons, Nick, Steady Mindful, James, and Bin Lee. You all make this show possible. I appreciate it so much. I know thousands of other people who are listening right now appreciate it too. If you would like to be a bigger part of this show and put your money where your mind is, go to patreon.com slash Just a coffee a month is all that it takes to keep this show going. Again, that's patreon.com slash Cadavy. Recently, I got an email 
It was about an article I had written two years prior. In the article, I said I wish someone would make a decent meditation timer with a beautiful sounding chime. Someone did make it and they sent it to me. It's the Awake Mindfulness Clock by Off Grid Mindfulness. And now they're sponsoring the show. Listen all through November as we talk to the creator, the guy who sent me that email, L.R. Laggy. We'll learn about the cool features this timer does have, as well as the features it doesn't have. In the meantime, use the code LOVEYOURWORK at offgridmindfulness.com to get 10% off the Awake Mindfulness Clock. If you order before December 16th, you'll get a free travel case. Again, that's loveyourwork at offgridmindfulness.com. Here is Dan Ariely. Dan Ariely is back on the show. I'm glad to have him here. And I've got this new book of yours, Amazing Decisions. And it's a, uh, I, I want to call it a comic book, but I guess it's more yeah. of a graphic novel. Uh, how did you end up making the amazing decision to release a graphic novel instead of your usual uh, book that is all words? <laughs> yes. So um, I, th- I think I think it's a little bit like uh, like you. Um, you know, you you stumble in life on all kinds of interesting opportunities, and sometimes you decide to take on a new adventure. And uh, in this particular case, mm-hmm. I was in the uh, Rhode Island School of Design. And I went to the uh, Department of Illustration and they were doing lots of illustrations of uh, flowers and biological things. And I, I just loved what they were doing. You know, it was the same, but different. Um, and I asked the teacher there uh, if uh, she has uh, a student who might want to work on illustration for social science. And I had no idea what it, what it means, but I just said, hey, do you have one? And she recommended a couple. And I hired uh, one of them, Matt, to come to the lab uh, without knowing exactly what we'll do. And we started doing all kinds of things. We illustrated uh, cards and behavioral economic principles. And Matt helped in all kinds of uh, presentations and animating things. And then we decided to try a graphic novel. And it was, it was a really interesting thing because uh, the writing is so different than writing a, a book. Um, it, first of all, it, it's, a bit, it's a bit more like writing a movie, I think. Or at least that's what, what Matt mm. uh, says. Uh, you, you, it's, it's a bit more like writing a movie. Uh, you start with a text, and then um, there's the illustration that come with it. And the text, of course, is much shorter and very specific. And, and once you have the text, and Matt starts illustrating, uh, you're not allowed to go back and edit. <laughs> uh, you know, you can, you can edit as long as you keep the same length of sentence, but all of a sudden the constraints become very different. So it was really fascinating to get this other language and approach and uh, process. And uh, I, I, I let Matt do the things that Matt is an expert on. And I constrained myself to the small things uh, that, that I know. And it was a beautiful collaboration and I, I learned a lot. So that's, uh, that's all we can ask for. I'm so glad that you shared how the process was different because that was exactly what I was going to be asking you is that typically you're writing a book. It's a relatively linear product or 
the process can be linear once you really know what you're talking about. Right. Can you tell us more about how that process was different when you have these parts that aren't going to be able to move and that you maybe can't see until Matt has done some of the drawing? Yeah. So first of all, you know, people have different styles for writing. Uh, For me, um, I, I write a little bit like giving talks and maybe it's because I'm, I'm a professor and I'm used to giving talks. So I, I usually start with an outline. Mm. I, and I, and I work on the outline, uh, a lot. And I think about what should come before and how do I illustrate different points and, and I work on an outline. And then from the outline, I, I write it out. And when I write it out, uh, sometimes I realize that this was not right that uh, this thing should have come before this, or this was not a good example, and, and so on. Um, and I, I edit a lot. I would say that um, when I write a book, uh, probably when I finish the book, I edit it another 20 times, right? I go over things, I, I read them out loud to myself, I read it quietly, I think about different parts, I think about the big picture, the small picture, but lots of lots of editing, lots of massaging, of the text and thinking about what, what happens. And I also, when I have the opportunity, I, I give talks on each chapter and then I see what, uh, what people resonated with, what, uh, doesn't seem as clear. And, and I get, I get these feedback, uh, but here, uh, this, this couldn't happen. And the other thing is that you're working with somebody else who in their mind has something, <laughs> And, you know, they're not telling me or, you know, I, I can't get it. So, so we write a text and it's a bit like, like a script for a movie. And then Matt has a page with a few boxes in it. And he has like, um, like a circle and uh, a stick in one of them. And right now, and it could be something like a person in a tree in his mind he now understands what is the essence of this drawing. And there's only the text, but you know, I'm not in Matt's mind. So I, I don't really know what it is. So it's writing a script and, and I don't know what is the supporting uh, imagery for a script. And, and Matt has something in his head about what it would look like, but, but I can't mm-hmm. really see it. I can see a little bit and I can ask questions about what is going to be here, but, but it's not the same. And, and all of a sudden it becomes an exercise in which, uh, I need a lot more trust and I'm shooting much more in the dark. Right. So I, uh, we worked very hard on a text initially. I think it took us, you know, uh, it, it's a short book. It's a graphic novel. The, the number of words is very, very small, but it took us a long time. Because writing, first of all, writing in a short way is much more time consuming, but also trying to figure out what can be written and what can't be written and what is going to support the art and what is not going to support the art. And then, and then Matt uh, creates the art that goes along with it. And I have to say, okay, so what's here and what's here? And does this make sense? And, and try to, to understand it. And, and Matt also has to verbalize things that are not always easy to verbalize. You know, if you're, if you're an artist, I think you have a lot of things that are uh, obvious to you, uh, but hard to verbalize. Mm-hmm. And then, um, 
Oh, and I forgot one important step. And the important step was to figure out, again, like a movie, what are going to be the characters that would narrate the book? And, uh, you know, we picked, we picked a narrator and uh, we picked the, the good fairy and the bad fairy to, to accompany us throughout the book and, and give, the, give the narrative uh, around that. Um, and it was so different than, uh, than writing a book and, and so interesting. But I have to say that, um, you know, I did, I did take uh, really instructions from, from Matt, which is not easy for me because I, you know, I usually like to be in control. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I trusted uh, Matt to a large degree and, and I think the result is... Uh, a lot, a lot due to Matt. Yeah. So you had to tell a story. Yeah. Too was that the the area where you were getting a lot of input from Matt? So you know, I I know how to tell a story uh, when I'm the storyteller, and I can I can share something. But but this we decided early on that I'm not going to be the storyteller, and there's going to be a different voice. And then we also decided early on that there's going to be these two fairies, the market norm fairy and the social norm uh, fairy that are going to give their perspective uh, throughout the book as a way as a way to glue it. So so I'm very accustomed to say, you know, here's a study we did, uh, here's why I thought about it. it. It's all kind of how I came up with research ideas, uh, what did we do, what did we find out? So So I'm very, very comfortable with that. But all of a sudden, it's a very different story. It's not, I'm saying, here's what I've done. It's, there's a narrator and there's uh, different voices and they have to be consistent and it's, and it's not me. So all of that was very new to me. And how do you think this would have gone? It sounded like you got a chance to workshop a lot of these ideas. You've written about some of these ideas, even though you didn't necessarily do talks about the book in general, you had done talks about some of the concepts that were in it. Plus you had worked with Matt before so it sounded like there were a lot of these elements that you had already worked on quite a bit. I mean, how would this have gone if this were, say, your first book? So you're absolutely right. So, you know, if you think about market norm and social norms, which is, which is what this uh, book is, is really about from a content perspective, uh, it's really about how money gets us to think differently and how social norms get us to think differently and when are those things good and bad and how do we get into trouble uh, how do we mess up motivation for ourselves, for others? Uh, what does it mean for the for the grand scheme of uh, living in a world that you know has to worry about global warming and health and so on? Um, now, what I had going for me is that I had a sense of from the you know fifty experiments that we've done on this topic, uh, which are the top twenty. Right? Which are the ones that uh, people resonate the most? Which are the ones that uh, make the point in in the best possible way? Uh, and also, what are some of the complexities in them that are just not needed? So academics, you know, sometimes we do experiments with multiple control conditions that are important for something, but not for many things. And they might be important for a subgroup, but not important in a general topic. So, so, so giving giving talks about some of this material um, teaching in general have kind of helped me take the research 
corpus on that and narrow it down to the things that I thought were the most relevant, that uh, put together, and also help me figure out what details are not important. So that um, mm. has been very, very helpful. But, but when I wrote my, my first book, Predictably Irrational, it took me, I think, a little bit more than four months to write the first chapter. And, and the reason is that it took me a really long time to find my voice. So Predictably Irrational, if, if, you, if you go back and look at one chapter, uh, you, you'll see a few things. One is that it's very similar to how I speak, uh, which took me a long time to get to it. I started writing like I write. At that time I wrote only academic work, but so I started writing in my writing voice, not with my speaking voice, and I, and I changed. The second thing is that I, I made the experiment the hero of the story. So the experiments, we usually write about them in small fonts and very quickly and very technical. But the experiments are really the mystery of, of, of science, right? You basically say, here's one subject, they do this. Here's another subject, they do this. What's the difference? Uh, what will happen to their behavior? So, so I wrote it a little bit like a, a detective novel where there's a mystery that comes from the different experimental conditions. And then I also used what we call the identifiable victim effect. So we, we have lots of results showing that if you describe a situation from the perspective of one person, let's say a tragedy, our hearts go to them and we can simulate how they feel. If the tragedy is very large, our emotions go away. And I wanted people to empathize with the participants as they were going through the experiment. So rather than writing, you know, we had 152 people do this, I say, here's Joey. And here's exactly what he went through. And the hope was that people could, could sense what Joy was doing and could simulate doing it themselves. But so it took me about four and a half months maybe to, to figure those things out, even though when I say them now, they seem kind of trivial. But it took me a long time. I did lots of attempts. And, and then once I figured my voice, uh, the rest was, was much simpler. Uh, and I think I, I wrote the rest of the book in, in six months. So really a long time to find my specific voice and how I want to write the, the book. Here, um, I think a lot of the, the time was, was to find out the structure above the experiments. So, so I had the experiments and the facts I wanted to emphasize and the ones I thought were not that important. Uh, but, but it took us a while to come up to this idea that we'll have the narrators and two fairies representing the two sides of the story. Uh, that, that took some time and we actually had a few iterations uh, around it. But once we picked that, then I think it also uh, went quite fast. Yeah, there can be this, with all creative projects, there can be this initial exploratory phase where there's really a lot of waste happening. I remember this at, at Timeful. It was one of the really... Uh, <laughs> impressive things about working on that product was that we would work on something and play with it and then totally scrap it. And it wasn't any yep. like, oh no, we, we wasted something, but that was part of the process. And then once you find that right structure, then you can follow. Yeah. And, you know, I think, I think it's something that we're kind of losing uh, the realization in the digital age. So, so imagine mm. that you write in, in a word processor. Um, 
and you write and you edit and you edit and you get to version 25 and you don't see the path. You don't have the memory of, of what happened. You don't see the road you had to go through to get to this new realization. You can just ask yourself, like, why didn't I just write version 25? <laughs> why, why did I start with version one and made <laughs> all these wrong directions? You know, in, in, in the old days, when you used to uh, write, uh, let's say, with, with longhand or a typing machine, you, you would have the history of what happened to the text. And, and the history in, you know, version tracker is not, that's not very helpful. Because I think there's something really useful in realizing that there's a path to go through. And it's, it's self-discovery as, and it's uh, increased understanding. And, and this path is valuable. Uh, yes, it's time-consuming. And you can say, oh, I wish I didn't have to go through it. But, but it does make the book much better. Um, and and, and if, 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 we ha- if we keep a track of, of, this, of this path, I think we would get much more satisfaction from the whole, from the whole process. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to do it in the digital world, but, but I think we should and say, oh, you know, this, this is what happened. And I, I took this path and only by taking it, I realized what I did wrong. In, in design, there's this uh, principle called function follow form. And the idea is that only once you see something, you can sometimes truly understand what it could be used for. And, and that's also what, what happened at, uh, in Timefall and what happens for me with writing is only when you write the full argument, like you know, I said, I, I write outlines and then I, I fill the outline and sometimes you fill the outline and you say, oh, you know, now that I fill the outline, now I'm realizing this is not the right approach. Uh, but, but you can't do it without taking the path. And I think that it's important to be aware of that path because I, what stands in the way a lot of the time, and I love what you said about the fact that previously you could see the process of writing as it was happening, as you're scrapping things and whiting things out and scratching things out. Now we have this thing where you're typing it and it's appearing on the screen and it might look just like it would look on your Kindle. And so that can be disheartening in a way because you expect it to be a finished product. Because it looks like the finished (laughs) But it's clearly not. Sorry to jump for a second, but this reminds me, I I had a nightmare. Yeah. And the nightmare was that Amazon uh, writes me uh, from Kindle and they said that as a favor to authors, they're now making the Kindle source code available to the authors to keep on editing their books for as long as they want. <laughs> you know, and I thought, you know, it's, it's like, you know, it sounds so reasonable, right? In the technological age, why, why would you ever stop anything? But, you know, there's something so wonderful about finishing something and having a point that says, you know, it's, it's done. We've, we've done this. It's, it's ready. Um, and if they gave you the permission to keep on editing it, oh, it would just, <laughs> it would be a nightmare. So you've seen my office before, but, uh, I mean, you have, the, the listeners haven't, but, uh, but I have, I have this, mm-hmm. uh, glass wall and, and on it, uh, what I do is I, I do try to keep track of some projects. So for example, there's another, uh, a writing project that I have right now. And I basically kind of have 
the written outline of what I started with. <laughs> and later on, when I changed my mind, I didn't just erase it. I, I wrote a new one. So it's next to it. And I can see yes. something now, you know, you, I can't do it for the whole text. But even keeping something about, you know, what, what have we changed and, and some, some new insight, uh, I think would be helpful for, for motivation. Because otherwise, it's just heartbreaking, right? You finish working for a whole week and then you find out, oh, this was not a good idea. Let's, let's go back. It's really, really tough. This is something that I struggle with creating things and that I've hit a point where I feel comfortable with it. And it sounds from the way that you're talking about it, that you're very comfortable with it too, is, is understanding that waste is a part of the process and understanding going into it when you are writing that first outline, understanding yeah. that it will be scrapped and being comfortable with that. I find that helps my motivation quite a bit. Yeah, that's a very important process. And, and also to try to enjoy the process rather than the, the outcome. And for me, uh, I, I noticed that uh, over the years, I write slower than I used to. So I, I think that now uh, I write a little bit more like sipping wine, where I uh, mm-hmm. am more comfortable and I, I write slower and I try to enjoy each sentence. And, and there's something much more about uh, the moment of the writing rather than thinking about a particular a particular goal i'm even i'm even writing something now that i think i'll never publish uh, but just for practice so i i decided to try and write a, a fiction book i i don't think i'll ever publish it actually i'm quite sure i'll never publish it but i'm really enjoying pushing myself into you know i i i write social science it's 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 not fiction i mean i'm not fooling myself that i'm a uh, you know, a talented writer, it's, it's a very different skill and it's much easier to write about social science than to, to be a fiction writer. But, but I enjoy pushing myself and experimenting and, and trying uh, different things and, you know, failing and making amateurish mistakes. And, but but it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful process to get involved in. We're going to take a quick break. I'm L.R. Laggy, and I'm the founder of Off-Grid Mindfulness. I love this chime sound. What's the story behind this chime sound? It's the main thing that differentiates this mindfulness clock from just any alarm clock you can get on Amazon. It took me hours and hours to find a clean chime sound. I was searching around. I was playing with MIDI composers. And finally, I found a guy who happened to be in Boulder, Colorado, who's been putting sounds online for the last 20 years. I got in touch with him, and that's the sound that's on the clock right now. It's very relaxing. Previously, I was using kitchen timers. Uh Like There's all these kitchen timers you can get on Amazon, which people are using for meditation timers, but they all have terrible sounds. And you can see that in the reviews, people complaining about the shrill sounds of these timers. Yeah, I think that's a great feature of this clock. This is a, an A-sharp wind chime sound, actually. Get 10% off the Awake Mindfulness clock when you use the code LOVEYOURWORK at offgridmindfulness.com. Purchase by December 16th and get a free travel case. When you started your business, did you dream about all these admin tasks? 
like drafting proposals and contracts, tracking down payments? Probably not. You don't want to be scrambling up your brain, switching mental states all day. You know that is a creativity killer. And that is why there is HoneyBook. HoneyBook is an online business management tool that organizes your client communications, booking, contracts, and invoices. It even automates tasks in your business. It's all in one beautiful interface that keeps you on top of your business. HoneyBook even consolidates the services you already use like Gmail, QuickBooks, and Google Calendar. That way you're not shifting around trying to search for information. And right now, HoneyBook is offering our listeners 50% off when you visit honeybook.com slash loveyourwork. Payment is flexible, and this promotion applies whether you pay monthly or annually. Go to honeybook.com slash loveyourwork for 50% off your first year. That's honeybook.com slash loveyourwork. When you do this fiction writing, do you find elements of what you're learning through that process seeping in to the rest of your work? Uh, yes, but I'll tell you what this uh, fiction is about. The hero of the story is an experimentalist. Like in his professional life, he, he runs experiments on all kinds of things. And our hero decides to uh, start experimenting on himself. And basically every chapter is a big experiment that he takes on himself. And there's an experiment on poverty, trying to, to live at a high poverty for a while. There's an experiment on trying to join a commune and uh, not care about uh, property. Anyway, so there's all kinds of experiments. And, and the thing that kind of fits with my life is that it, it's really a tool for me to imagine big personal experiments that I some of them I might try one day and some of them I'll probably not have the guts to try. But it's to tackle uh, real questions uh, about psychology and behavior uh, through imaginary experiments. So I, when I go into this uh, writing mode, I, I use that to try and get into the picture and try to predict how I would feel. So for example, um, in this chapter in the commune, uh, there's, there's a part where somebody else in the commune is deciding to take their whole family to Switzerland for a ski vacation. And, and I have a question of how do I feel about it? How do I feel that they're taking a big part of my financial contribution to the commune mm -hmm. and deciding to go to Switzerland on a ski vacation? And, and, you know, I, I, I don't know how you would feel about this. I, I would like to get to a situation when I would feel really good about that, right? Like my, my ideal would be to say in the same way that I care about my family. And if people in my family went to Switzerland on a ski vacation, I would be happy. I would want them to, to do something that would increase their well-being at a, at a financial cost. Uh, but but it's very hard to want that to be extended beyond your family. But I, I want to, to explore this. But, but in, in, the, in writing, I try to build a world around this. And I try to uh, really put myself into this world and, and use all the description and imagery uh, to basically ask myself this question, can I be happy for them? Uh, by the way, my conclusion was that I can. Uh, it, it, it wasn't easy. 
<laughs> it's, a, it's a mindset shift. But that I could get to that situation in which I expanded the notion of what closeness is uh, to include other people as well. Now, you know, I didn't do the experiment for real. It's just a thought experiment, even though it's, it's rich. Uh, but anyway, so that's, that's what I'm doing uh, in, this, in this fiction uh, project. And I'm trying to uh, basically think to myself about uh, all kinds of issues in, in the world. And uh, could we do things in a different way? Could I do things in a different way? How I would feel under these conditions? How would I behave? Don't you think that you're going to wake up one day and you'll have an idea for an experiment and you will basically be able to track it back to this experiment of writing this fiction? Absolutely. So I'm playing with experiments that I, I would want to do anyway. I'm not sure I'll be able to, but, but that's the goal. The goal is to say, here's some things that I would like to do or to think. Uh, I, I, I can't do it right now, but I would just like to simulate it. But, but at some point, I think some of those experiments I'll, I'll really do. Yeah, those things will seep in, I'm sure, and resurface at some point. You must feel confident enough in your writing ability now that, that would that have something to do with your ability to, to sit and be more patient and, and slower with it? Absolutely. I think there's more confidence. Uh, there's less of a hurry uh, to do anything. I also understand that, you know, it's just about sitting and writing and it will happen and I don't need to worry. Uh, I, I have enough experience to know that it, it comes out. And I also think there is something about enjoying the, the micro parts of it. So, you know, I, I love expertise in anything. I love uh, people who are, you know, good artists and poets and, and athletes, whoever, whoever it is that really does things well. I really, I really uh, admire, admire that. And, and sometimes when I write now, I, I get to think about small things that probably nobody would notice. But, but are now important to me. Mm-hmm. Well, wait, what's an example of one of these small things? An example uh, might be that I use a similar structure for, let's say I, I have a column in the Wall Street Journal, right? So I might put something that in question, uh, every two weeks I answer three questions, right? And I some, sometimes try to make references between the different questions to other questions. So, you know, you have question one, question two, question three, answer one, answer two, answer three. And sometimes in answer three, I refer to something that I mentioned in answer one. Probably nobody pays attention or sometimes I just use a similar sentence or I use a, a related word to connect to it. I don't think people pay attention, but I pay attention. Or uh, another example that nobody <laughs> paid attention to, my first book, Predictably Irrational, the acronym is PI, right? An irrational number. You know, I, I liked it. <laughs> uh, I don't think anybody paid attention to that. So that's what I mean. I have kind of a whole, um, sorry for jumping like this, but, but when I started giving talks, at some point I met an actor and I asked him, how does he not get bored? I wasn't bored at the time, but I asked him how he doesn't get bored. And what he said was that he's, you know, because when you're acting, you're doing the same play exactly over and over. It's, it's, it's much more difficult than giving a talk. Yeah. And what he said was that he makes small variations 
pauses, positions, um, sometimes a word or two, very, very small, he said. But he also keep track in his mind uh, about how the audience is reacting to that. And he's trying to say, okay, smaller pause, larger pause, let's just try two different ones and see what it is. And he says that it gave him an extra level of interest because he had the script and then he had the meta level of, okay, let's make small variation. Let's keep track of what the audience is, is reacting to. And, and I did that in, in talks as well. So for example, pauses are very tough. If you speak a new, tr- like it's so tempting to just continue. If you look at good stand-up comedians, they just stop forever. Mm-hmm. You know, and they let the audience think and laugh and so on. It's so hard to do. But, uh, but anyway, when I gave talks, I started taking his advice and trying different things and starting observing that. And it became so much more interesting. And I think I do the same thing in, in writing now is I write, but I have my own uh, meta level uh, above that in which I say, ah, let me try something else, uh, something now. Let me, let me make a reference to that. And I play games with myself uh, about, about the writing. And I think it just makes it uh, much more fun. It's very useful to, to have kind of a repetition of something. It's very efficient use of your mental resources and you can keep making the thing better and better if you could just make these these little tweaks. Um, as far as writing process goes, I know we've gone way down this rabbit hole of writing and I think it's very interesting. It's not what people would probably typically uh, expect to hear you talking about, but it made me think about all the things that I learned working on Timeful about my own productivity. One of those being this idea of there being kind of a sweet spot of this is the time when I'm productive. And if I lose a moment of this two-hour block, it's gone for the whole day, perhaps for the whole week. Uh, have you found any of that in your own work? Is, are there rhythms to the way that you do your work, especially creatively? Yes. So for me, uh, the best time of the day are the morning hours. Not too early, but kind of eight. And I try to keep those sacred. Yeah, I usually don't get two hours. I get about an hour just because of constraints. Um, and what I do is I come to the office. Uh, I turn on my computer and I go to make myself an espresso. Uh, I make myself an espresso in the kitchen. I come, I come back and then, um, you know, nothing is open aside from my word processor. And I have like a morning ritual where I drink my espresso and I only work on something that I really would be proud if I, if I did this. If you remember, we, we talked about the fact of oh. what is your objective? And we said that the objective is to feel at the end of the month or the end of the year that you've spent your time well, right? On a day-to-day basis, there's often things that seem urgent but not important and you feel the need to, to do them, like getting to inbox zero. But a life in which you get to get to inbox zero a lot is not necessarily like how we want to design our life. And we said, you know, mm-hmm. one, one question about what's a task worthwhile doing is something that at the end of the month or the end of the year, you would say, or a decade, you would say that was a good way to, to spend my time. So, so I, we all know what those tasks are. And, and I basically make sure that I start the day with the tasks. That's my productive time. 
Uh, I, I don't get distracted. I don't look at email. I don't look at my phone. Uh, my phone, by the way, almost all day is on do not disturb mode, right? So I don't. Likewise, yeah. Uh, I don't get phone calls. Uh, I don't get notifications for anything. It's not nice sometimes to other people, right? I mean, if I have an appointment with somebody, of course, I, I, I turn it off so I can get the call. Um, but I basically try to be uh, very careful uh, about my time. And this, this ceremony of the, um, of the morning coffee together with the, the productivity is, is also very helpful, right? It's a, we call this reward substitution. When we take something that we enjoy and we pair it together with something that might be a bit complex or difficult and, and so on. It's like, uh, you know, running on the gym, in the gym and, and watching some uh, trashy show that you really want to watch, but you don't feel comfortable with this, right? You, you pair a, a reward together with something you don't, uh, you don't feel like necessarily doing all the time. So, uh, so, so this together is, is incredibly uh, helpful to start the day. Um, now, because I travel a lot, it, it's not, on the days when I'm not in the office, it's very, very tough to do. So, for example, for the Wall Street Journal, uh, this is not very complex writing. You know, it's three questions, three answers. It's, it's fun to think about, but, but it's not um, very difficult writing. Uh, so that one I usually try to do uh, when I'm in coffee shops. Right, so I I try to go somewhere fun, uh, sit, uh, observe people. I read the question. I think about the answer. I look at people some more. Come up with what I want to write, and then I write it. So I I have a different uh, different environment uh, for that. So it's it's something that's a little easier for you to do, but you find that the stimulation. And also you have this element of going to a place that triggers you to work on this particular project. Is that particular cafe your place for that project? No. So the challenge is I travel a lot, right? So last year, or last year I traveled 300 days, right? That's a lot. So if I want to wait for the days I'm in the office, there's just not enough of them. So I needed a different uh, ritual. And, and coffee shops are really uh, a wonderful place. And, and also because I, I write about, you know, human behavior, people ask me questions. Uh, sometimes just observing people is also a good stimulant for creativity uh, for that. So, so, so I had to find another alternative because, you know, if, when I'm in the office, I'm in the office, but the, the, the newspaper doesn't wait <laughs> uh, for that. So, so I have deadlines. Mm-hmm. Um, so I need to find something that I can do in, in every possible place. And, you know, hotels are usually not that nice. Um, you know, sometimes they're nice hotels, but it's not, it's not a hospitable environment and certainly not welcoming for writing. Right. And I'm similar this way in that my writing that doesn't take as much thinking, like maybe the intros for this podcast, I will go to a particular cafe specifically to do those, I find that the extra stimulation gets me going. But if it's uh, something that's extremely difficult, I want to do that first thing in the morning and have earplugs in and really be cut off from everything. Like there's different types of intellectual heavy lifting in those respects, I believe. Is that something that you find? 
Yeah. Um, you know, I, I even, uh, mostly I, I work without music. Uh, but if I put music and try to write with music, it's much easier for me to write with classical music. Uh, the moment that there are words uh, and lyrics, that's much, much more difficult for me. So, Yes. There was something that you mentioned very early on that I wanted to circle back on, which was that um, you talked about stumbling upon Matt and this idea of working with an illustrator. And I remember there was a podcast that you did, I think it was on Shane Parrish's podcast, where you mentioned that you try to do some percentage of things that make no sense. (laughs) That you're obviously somebody who has more opportunities than you could possibly attend to. But that if you're constantly thinking to yourself, well, what's going to be the output or result of this, then you can start to stagnate, I I think is is perhaps the thinking behind it. Can you talk about that strategy? Yeah. So, you know, I I, uh, gamble with my time and uh, I, I try different things and, you know, sometimes they work incredibly well. So uh, here's, here's one example. Um, there's a startup guy who calls me and he says that they want to do a digital insurance company. And I just have so many projects, completely overburdened, so I say no. So, so I get a call from, from a friend. He says, hey, this guy Daniel is going to call you. He wants to talk to you. Would you talk to him? Well, this, this guy Daniel calls, insurance company, digital Okay, but I promised my friend I'll, I'll talk to him. So I go to talk to him and, you know, they want to do a digital insurance company and I've been studying dishonesty for a very long time. And they said, look, they wanted me to join. And I said, you know, I, I would join only if you can make an insurance company with no conflicts of interest. And they said, what do you mean? I said, look, in a regular insurance company, you have the consumer and you have the insurance company. And the consumer pays, 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 pays. At some point, something bad happened. They want the money back. But the insurance company holds the money and they don't want to give it back. And, you know, conflicts of interest, you don't have to have bad people. You just have to have people. And, and you ha- you'll have bad behavior. So they said, how do you solve it? And I said, look, there are many ways. But one way to solve it is to make it into a three-party game. Instead of consuming an insurance company, let's have consumers, insurance company, and a charity. And when people join, we'll ask them, what's the charity you love the most in the world? And let's say they say the World Wildlife Fund. So we said, okay, consumer, we're going to take your premium. Uh, We will always take 20% of the premium as our revenue. And we'll pay back claims. And if for all the people who join under the World Wildlife Fund, if we have money left over in that pool at the end of the year, it will go back to the World Wildlife Fund. And two things happen with this design. Uh, One is that we, the insurance company, is indifferent. We always make 20%. It doesn't matter if we pay you or pay the insurance company. We we just don't care. So we don't have a conflict of interest. And the other thing is that you as the individual, um, you know, if you're cheating, you're cheating your favorite charity. You're not cheating us. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that was a a wonderful discussion. And they, they liked the idea and we decided to to work together. And we started an insurance company called Lemonade, uh, just, just starting. And I have to say it, it's, it's working incredibly well. Uh, about two weeks after we started, we started in New York. We got the first fun email. We got an email from somebody who said that we insured his apartment 
he told us that his laptop was stolen and we paid him. But it turns out his laptop was just misplaced. He reported the stolen, but it was just misplaced. And he said, how do I return the money? On that day, I called all my friends and all the insurance company I know, and I asked them, what do you usually do when people want to return money? And, and nobody has a form for that, right? Because it never happened. And to us, to us, it happens a lot, <laughs> right? I mean, a lot. It happens. So, so here is something that for me is, you know, a random meeting, wanting to do something about conflicts of interest, finding the opportunity to do it, now there's this incredible startup that is, is based on this um, idea, um, all because of an initial, you know, gambling of time. And, and, you know, it's not always a startup. Sometimes it's a, it's a meeting. Sometimes it's, a, it's an adventure. There's all kinds of things that happen. But, you know, there's, there's this research on luck. And it turns out that there are lucky people and non-lucky people. But, but luck is, is not about, like, luck in a roulette wheel. Uh, luck is about trying lots of things and cutting out the things that don't work out early, right? So think about it like, you know, you, you plant lots of seeds, lots of different things, you try them out. And if something works, you keep on investing in it and something not, you cut it off. And, and if you take that approach, you basically get to generate your luck. And that's what I try to do. Yeah. So the flip side of planting all these seeds might be that you plant one crop and your entire garden is full of that crop and eventually some pest comes and wipes it all out as opposed to say planting a whole bunch of different things like why do we have to gamble with our time why can't we just always be measuring what the output is of what we put in so the problem is that we don't we don't know the expected value in, uh, of everything until we get into it Right? So when you mm-hmm. start an adventure, it doesn't matter if it's a date or a meeting or a startup, you don't really know what the thing is. And because of that, it's very hard to, to estimate the probability that this will be really something. Uh, I'll give you another example. I, I had a friend and she has a, a friend of her is a, is a mentalist, right? He guessed people's credit card number and their first love and all kinds of things like that. <laughs> and she said, Dan, I think you would love performing with this guy on stage. You know, I had no idea. Like, how would that be? How would it work? Uh, so we, we, we did it in Israel. He's Israeli as well. We did, we did it in Israel. Uh, in 10 minutes, uh, there were 2,000 people who wanted tickets. So we had to find a bigger theater. Uh, and then we did it a few times, and it's been amazing. It's been fun for me, fun for him. And huh. every time we kept on doing it, it's been even more fun. And I learned things about magic and I learned things about psychology um, and about performance. And he's learning some things about social science. Um, wasn't really something that I thought would work out. And I, I don't think I thought anybody would show up for it. But uh, so far, it's going incredibly well. So our ability to predict what projects would work and not work is not very high. And if we stick only to the things that are sure things, we're giving up some of the long tail of success. Yeah. And it sounds like that happened with this mentalist, with Lemonade, with your trips to the design school. Is this something that you've had to be intentional about or is it naturally the way that you think? I'm intentional about saying yes more often than I should. 
right? And and because of that, I I do experience uh, more stress. Right? Well, don't so you I, then have to say no to a lot of sure <laughs> things? Then I do, I do. At some point, I have to say no to to some things that are mundane and sure things, and so on. It 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 comes at the cost of something. They're clearly going to pay off, but you have to say no just because you're not excited about it. That's right. I don't have like a, a you know like a ten percent rule or something specific like that. But I try to say yes to random things a couple of times a month at least. Yeah. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. We didn't get to go too far into Amazing Decisions, which is a beautiful book. Thank you. I think that if people are wondering why it is that Lemonade, you know, why somebody would return their insurance claim money, they're going to find the answer in this book, Amazing Decisions about Market Norms and Social Norms. Anywhere else that you'd like for people to to get more of you? My website, www.danarielli.com, D-A-N-A-R-I-E-L-Y. And uh, yeah. Thanks so much for coming on again. Lovely to hear from you again and looking forward to next time. Yes. Is Love Your Work helping you find your unique creative voice? Does it bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to become the creator and human you want to be? If so, please be a part of making this a special and nourishing and thoughtful show. Support the show on Patreon. You'll be an even bigger part of this show than you already are. If you contribute just a coffee a month, you'll be helping support the hosting and production of Love Your Work. Everyone has some unique creative gift to offer the world. Together, we can give people the tools they need to bring that work into the world. The world will be better off for it. Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash This is a different kind of model for supporting the work that you love. The choice is yours. Vote with your dollars, put your money where your mind is, and keep Love Your Work going. Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash As a thank you, you'll get early access, bonus content, and a discount on Love Your Work merchandise. Learn more at patreon.com slash cadavy. That's patreon.com slash K-A, D as in David, A, V as in Victor, Y. And if you can't support the show financially and you've listened to at least three episodes, can you do me a favor? Write a review on Apple Podcasts. You can consider it your donation to help support the show. Love Your Work is brought to you in part by our top Patreon supporters, such as Jeffrey Mason. This has been Love Your Work, and I'm David Cadavy. The theme music for this show is At Sea by Dorena from the album About Everything and More by arrangement with Deep Elm Records at deepelm.com. Love Your Work is a production of Cadavy, Inc.